Thank you for joining me on what we think is the best podcast in medicine today. I'm here with Dr. Alan Safdie, a world-famous gastroenterologist and internal medicine doctor, and we want to update you on COVID-19. We've been doing this since January, well before the government recognized this as a problem. Uh, Alan, uh, today I wanted to hear about some uh, treatments as uh, well as vaccines. Uh, and uh, briefly, let's talk about masks. Uh, what should the people be doing about masks now? Okay. Well, Bill, mask, and I've seen you walking with your mask, and I'm very impressed um, that you keep your mask on all the time, not just in the hospital, but out of the hospital. And I think that's really important. You know, before we get into the mask a little bit, you know, just right now, we have a tremendous amount of cases in the United States. And we've mentioned this previously, Bill, that we're under testing. So far, we've done about 5,700,000 tests in the United States. And if one looks at the Harvard plan, um, you know, of what we should be doing, it should be many, many, many times um, what that is. I mean, the Harvard plan is extremely inexpensive compared to the cost of quarantine. The cost of our collective quarantine may be up to $350 billion a month. Over two years, looking at the Harvard plan for testing, that'd be between 50 to $300 billion over two years. And what they're talking eventually is being able to test 5 to 20 million people per day, um, which is 2 to 6% of our population. And that way we can really decrease the incidence. We can do contact tracing. Um, just at the beginning, if we can test 2 million people per day, and remember we've only done through all of this, we've only done 5.7 million people. Testing 2 million, focusing on people that are close contacts to people, have it essential workers, nursing home residents, incarcerated people, people with symptoms. Um, we need to be doing testing. Testing is key. So on to mask, uh, and I'll get off my soapbox with that, but as you've said, and I've said multiple times, you know, we really need testing. So yeah, testing is, testing is the only way we're going to get out of this because it only makes sense that we should be quarantining people with active disease and people who have antibodies, um, can be out in the workforce. We believe, uh, you know, we're, we'll talk about that more uh, detail. Uh, um, so yeah, on the uh, mask. Yeah, testing, testing is key. Go ahead with the mask, Alan. You know, I, I agree with you completely, Bill, that testing is key. We need to know who has this silently. We need to know who has active infections, but we need to get the people that don't have active infections that are silent spreaders out of the population. And then we need to do contact tracing to who they've come in contact with, test those people. And that's going to be, you know, many millions of tests per day not over the entire course of this. And we need a concerted effort uh, by the government to really expand this. We've had a botched rollout of testing in the United States. Uh, we didn't understand how serious this was initially, um, even though we've yes, been and, and, the, and, and the powers that be have the, have the power, I mean, this is a war in my mind, uh, they have the power to demand and force companies into making testing materials. And yet we're not doing it. We have to do that. Uh, we have to take steps, drastic steps now to protect our future. Go ahead. Yeah, we've, already, we've, we've already lost more people than we did in the entire Vietnam War. Um, 
So when you're putting on a mask, remember you're touching your face. So before putting on your mask, wash your hands. And remember, we've gone over multiple times how to wash them adequately. You get that soap on there, take them out from underneath the water, rub your palms together, then between your fingers, then your nails into one palm, nails into the other palm, back of each hand, and then around your thumb. It should take at least 20 seconds if you're doing all those things adequately. So before you put your mask on, you know, wash your hands or use the hand sanitizer with the same motions you do use for uh, washing your hands to avoid cross-contamination. Once that mask is on, it's a no-touch zone. Your hands don't go to the front of the mask. You don't scratch underneath the mask. Um, you know, if you, you wash your hands before putting it on, you wash your hands after taking it off. Uh, the mask can be contaminated. So, you know, pick it up by the ties, the, the, whether they be cloth ties or bands or rubber bands or whatever is going to go around the ears or you're going to tie around the back of your head. Pick it up by that, but not by the mask. Adjust the mask so you don't have it, you know, it should ideally be over your nose and your mouth. And sometimes putting it over your chin will keep it in place a lot better. Um, and when you remove it, remove it by those same ties or bands. Do not remove it by touching the front of the mask. And, you know, if you're making a phone call, you know, don't take it off to talk on the phone. Leave it on there. We leave it on when we talk with masks on. Um, so you'd want to avoid touching the mask, though. When I ride a bike now, I have my mask on. Um, I get a lot of stares, but uh, I ride every day, but I have a mask on. And actually, more and more people are having masks on even riding a bike. The spread can be significant. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, medical therapy and what's on the horizon for this. Yeah. Now, uh, I just want to throw a couple things in here before we get started on that. I just want to briefly mention uh, NSAIDs, um, Advil, Naproxen. Uh, those medicines, um, there have been some reports from China saying that these medicines actually making my patients much more seriously ill. Uh, I don't know if it's true. It has not been substantiated. But for me, if, if you think that you might have COVID, uh, I, I personally would just take Tylenol and not take uh, any ads, uh, insects. Uh, let me ask you about hydrochloroquine. Uh, that's made a lot of press, um, Alan, and there's been some uh, recent studies about that. Uh, talk about that, if you would, please. Okay. Well, unfortunately, politicians really shouldn't I shouldn't be talking that much about politics. I'm not a politician. A politician shouldn't be out there spouting about a drug until it's been adequately studied. Um, so it really is inappropriate for a politician to say there's nothing to lose by using this drug. Um, there's studies that show uh, improper use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for COVID-19 may actually increase the risk of arrhythmias or death. Um, <clears throat> the FDA's even issued a safety warning about it. So yes, there, there was a VA study in which, uh, in which the, the population that they studied, there were twice as many deaths in patients that were discharged with chloroquine. They were discharged from the hospital and went on to die. There were twice as many deaths in patients that had chloroquine uh, versus patients that did not. So uh, there certainly uh, is some doubt of uh, how helpful this drug is. And as you said, um, uh, they've also issued, a, uh, they've already issued a warning against the use of this drug. So please, uh, please don't uh, start taking this drug uh, 
uh, without uh, without your physician's uh, recommendation. Well, and, and even I, I would even go a little bit farther. Even if your physician recommends it, I would try to be in a study. Uh, I think most of these drugs should be administered in the confines of a study because we don't know if they're more harmful than beneficial. Uh, as you mentioned in the VA study, it was not associated with the lower risk of requiring being on a ventilator. Um, you know, some of these can increase the risk of arrhythmias and other problems uh, or irregular heartbeats with it. So most drugs can have side effects. When you hear somebody say, well, there's no risk, uh, there can be risk with Tylenol, acetaminophen, there can be risk with this. Um, and it should be done within the confines of a study. Maybe it approved with certain dosages that we don't know about. It might be beneficial in the future. But right now, it doesn't appear with the current dosages and the means it's being used that it's been beneficial. Could it be beneficial in the future? Maybe. But uh, at this point in time, you know, as Bill mentioned, it doesn't appear to be appropriate for routine use. Um, the good news is uh, that there's 130 studies going on right now with medicines to treat uh, COVID-19. Um, so far, the not so good news is uh, we haven't had any medicines that have definitely uh, been shown to be helpful, uh, helpful yet. But we're going to uh, I want to get Alan's uh, Alan's opinion about that. Um, Alan, why don't, you, why don't you talk about some uh, drugs that have been used and uh, what can be, which may turn out to be helpful? Well, we'll talk a little bit about the pipeline. You know, when we look about drugs, we'd say, what's coming down the pipeline? You know, which drugs are showing early promise? And before we get into drugs, let's just mention uh, the non-drug therapies. Um, you know, one of the non-drug therapies that we have that's been around forever and ever, over 100 years, is convalescent plasma. So we find people that have recovered from COVID-19 and they have antibodies against COVID-19, and this is in theory, um, and we're taking people who are currently ill and infusing their plasma, which we've withdrawn from the people that recovered and giving that to the very sick people. And this process has been used for more than a hundred years it really carries very little risk compared to some of our newer drugs, uh, very little risk of harm or side effects. And only small studies have suggested it may help so far, it may reduce virus loads. Uh, controlled trials are in progress in China, European, Europe, United States, even here. Um, so we only have very small numbers of patients. Uh, one of the caveats is it's immediately available, already in limited use. But the supply of this plasma from recovered patients is not sufficient to meet our clinical needs. So um, I think that's really interesting. So you give these antibodies, they're kind of neutralizing the infection. Um, and yeah, though what's interesting in the in the 30s when they used the medicine and, and they used it against uh, measles and it was effective against uh, uh, streptococcal infections. Remember that was before uh, before the use of antibiotics uh, and uh, now, the trouble is, uh, when, 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 uh, as I understand it, we have relative, as you said, we have relatively small amounts of it. And when we give patients, uh, the average donor donates about 300 cc's of serum, plasma, and uh, each patient receives about 5 to 10 milliliters. Uh, in the past, it's been most effective during the first three days of infection. And then 
later on, I think you need larger amounts of it. And, and that kind of brings in the question of monoclonal antibodies. And I, uh, Alan, you're a world's expert on monoclonal antibodies. I know you've done dozens of studies about that. Do you want to comment about uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies and convalescent serum? Yeah, I mean, you know, the convalescent serum, I think, is worthwhile considering. Monoclonal antibodies are antibodies that can attach. They're actually an antibody that's in current use. So you probably have heard ads on uh, TV for monoclonal antibodies for rheumatoid arthritis, for Crohn's disease, for ulcerative colitis, um, lots of different diseases that we have out there. And there's already monoclonal antibodies uh, that are being studied. The nice part is these are some approved drugs. Um, they're not drugs that, you know, we can get into phase three studies. There's phase one studies, phase two studies, and phase three studies. And some of these we can get into later, late, later, because they're approved drugs. We can skip phase one, which is the toxicity part. You know, is this drug extremely toxic? Are there harmful side effects? And a lot of studies, you never get beyond phase one with a particular drug. Then phase two is a smaller number of patients looking for clinical efficacy. And then we move on to phase three. Um, so the rheumatoid arthritis drugs, we get something called a cytokine storm. Our own immune system is so hypervirulent and it attacks ourselves. Uh, we have too much of these inflammatory compounds. So we're using these to suppress our own immune system in the very sick patients. Uh, is it going to work? We don't know. Uh, other things, you know, but it, it does hold promise. Other things that have, you've heard about, remdesivir, uh, which is an investigational, it's a broad spectrum antiviral treatment. And it was previously tested in humans with Ebola. Um, didn't work in Ebola, but uh, it, in animal models, it's shown promise. In some early clinical studies right now, it's shown promise. Uh, these clinical studies are ongoing. Uh, there was premature release of one from China, and I have no idea about the data from that. Other things that look promising, um, it's called EIDD2801, and it's, again, an experimental type of drug, um, and it seemed to help so far. We're not sure if it's going to make, uh, you know, human trials, large human trials have not been done. Uh, but could it be beneficial as a prophylactic treatment, you know, before people get sick? So we need to find things before people get sick. Other things that are ongoing, there's use of vitamin C to treat patients with COVID-19. Um, it's not really supported by evidence from any clinical trials, uh, but people are trying it uh, in the ICU because we're trying almost everything. Um, so, you know, other commonly used things that are on the market colchicine, which is used as an anti-inflammatory drug to treat gout, um, is being used, again, to block some of these overactive immune cells in the cytokines. Same sort of thing that we're using with uh, serilumab or, you know, the arthritis, the rheumatoid arthritis type drugs. And those are already in phase two, three studies. Um, so those look promising. Then we get into the vaccination era. And Yes, let's let's talk about vaccines uh, because uh, the World Health Organization uh, states there's more than a, a hundred vaccines that are currently being tested. Um, do you want to talk about some of the more promising ones that you're aware of? 
I mean, there's huge ones. I, I'm just going to mention the, some of the ones I know because I don't know all 100 of them. Um, you know, there's lipid nanoparticles, little tiny particles containing this RNA of the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the COVID virus, and they're injected into the arm. Uh, there's a couple of those, one in the U.S., one in China. Uh, UK is using a chimpanzee adeno vaccine vector uh, to carry the gene um, for the spike protein injected into the arm. So fascinating study out of Germany. There's studies with RNA vaccines. Um, there's the another one. It's a pharmaceutical company in the United States. Um, again, a vaccine against the spike protein, which is these little spikes coming off of the virus itself. And they're still in yeah. animal stages of that. One one thing that I found, the only good news that I found so far is that the virus appears to be stable in terms of not changing its outer membrane so that theoretically a vaccine should be effective, even though there there have been um, um, multiple types of the uh, vaccine, uh, multiple types of the virus detected, that the, the, the outer wall appears to be stable and uh Theoretically, it sounds like a vaccine should be effective. No, it's it's exciting in that, you know, with influenza, everybody knows we have a slightly different shot every year. Um, and but with this, it's like a car, you know, imagine a car, the working parts of the car stay the same, which it, it, the outside color changes. So we might have 20 different colors of the car, but that doesn't substantially change the inner workings of the car. So if we can create a vaccine against certain of these spike proteins, which have not been changed, they've been stable, it may be effective. And one of the most interesting ones I've seen, and I'm old enough to remember the polio vaccine, and one of the most effective polio vaccines actually ended up being a pill. Um, and there is a company looking at a pill containing different SARS, COVID-2 or COVID antigens, you know, parts of the virus and giving the pill to patients. And they already have uh, five vaccine candidates based on different antigen combinations being tested. Yeah. Let and me that's just say really exciting to me. Yeah. Um, an antigen, an antigen is a, subs, a substance that uh, stimulates an antibody reaction. Um, so um, the, the only problem with that is very exciting. I think it's exciting because it's easy to administer. Um, back when we got the polio vaccine, when we were kids, they just went through schools and I got my polio vaccine in the school. Sometimes it was in churches, people got them. Um, but this is, won't start, you know, clinical testing until early in the second half of 2020. Um, but that has the ability to immunize mass portions of the population relatively quickly, if successful. So there's multiple studies in multiple countries uh, with uh, vaccines. Do you want to comment on that? Do you want to comment on the English? Uh, don't the, the English already had a vaccine against uh, uh, the SARS uh, uh, virus, and uh, they're trying to bring that to market? Well, bringing it, to, they're doing clinical studies on it. So, um, if people remember, there was MERS and SARS. So the virus we have right now we call SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and that is SARS-CoV. Um, so the COVID-19 is our SARS-CoV-2. 
So the initial SARS, which had a high mortality rate, it just wasn't quite as contagious, so it died off. Um, they developed a vaccine against that. It never really needed to be used, but it's already been developed. So they're studying that vaccine against this SARS virus. Uh, COVID-19 is a SARS type virus. Uh, so the exciting part of that is it's already gone through. Remember, if you can get past phase one of clinical trials, you've moved things up months. If you got into phase two, looking at some degree of efficacy and giving it to more people, uh, again, exciting because you've moved, you've stepped up development by many months. Uh, so in the British study, they've stepped up development because they already developed this um, for the initial SARS virus that died off uh, some years ago. So we've got a lot of exciting things coming down the pipeline, but in the meantime, the most important things you can do is before you blow your nose, after you blow your nose, wash your hands. Before you touch your face, wash your hands. Before you put your mask on, wash your hands. Um, you know, be very and social, careful. And people, social distancing, please. Social distancing, it works. And we're not going to have a vaccine. We're not going to have these savior medicines at least for six months. And he, even if we got them within six months, that would be a miracle. So uh, please do social distancing. Um, and uh, especially, especially young people, you know, this disease involves uh, everyone. And it's not just your grandparents that, that are going to die. Uh, there's 40 and 50 year old people that are going to die. And since we've had so much disease in the United States, we found that the disease has many more terrible characteristics that we weren't aware of. One of them is the uh, hypercoagulable state that allows for the formation of strokes so that people who are in their 40s now are having severe strokes that are only in the past only seen in patients in their late 70s and 80s. So this is this is a terrible, uh, a terrible infection. Uh, do you have any comments on that, Alan? No, I couldn't agree with you more. We know GI side effects. We know thromboembolism, meaning these blood clots that are occurring, uh, individuals have lost their leg, um, strokes. And if we get a vaccine in a year and a half, I'll even be shocked. Um, you know, phase to go from phase one up to phase through phase three studies, um, you know, six months would, I would be shocked more than I ever have been in my life. But I, you know, Bill is absolutely right. Social distancing, being careful, being respectful of everybody. And please urge everybody that we need more testing. I mean, we got to, you know, we need testing, we need social distancing. We need to do the things that are rational for this. And the next time, you know, Obama gave a speech some years ago that we had to prepare for a pandemic. We, this is not going to be our only pandemic that we're going to have. Um, we've had other ones, not as severe as this, not since 1918, but we've had other severe pandemics. So we need to prepare. Um, I think rather yeah. than cutting funding for the WHO, the World Health Organization, we increase funding for the WHO. Uh, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we're losing every single month now, where we're losing, you know, an enormous amount by shutting down the economy, you know, up to $350 billion a month. Um, you know, supporting the WHO is a drop in the bucket. All right, Alan, thank you for that great discussion. Uh, let's stay tuned. Uh, we're going to keep giving uh, uh, weekly 
updates on this uh, COVID uh, um, disease uh, process. Thank you, Bill. Stay safe.